Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. Uh, this week, I'm joined by Nurma Yalachik. She is the Director of External Relations for the Commission for International Justice and Accountability, also known as CJA. Yurma uh, was a source for a major investigation that I did with uh, Jet Goldsmith of Bellingcat this week, which was published in the Daily Beast and also New Lines magazine. This is an incredibly complex, bizarre, amusing and scary story, which essentially maps out an international network of disinformation peddlers, propagandists who were in league with Russian government officials in four different Russian diplomatic missions around the world, from New York to Geneva to London to The Hague, all with an eye toward trying to sow doubt and skepticism. Frankly, the word should be conspiracy theories about the 2018 Syrian chemical weapon attack in the Duma an attempt to undermine the OPCW's ongoing investigation into what took place and how and who the perpetrators were. Nurma, it's great to have you on the show. You and I have been talking for the last three weeks, I think, nonstop about this. You essentially, your organization, reached out to one of these disinformation peddlers, uh, Professor Paul McKeague, who belongs to an organization in the UK known as the Working Group for Syria Propaganda and Media or something like that. We, we call them the Working Group for short. And you guys pretended to be a Russian spy, and you were trying to solicit from Professor McKeague whatever information his organization or his little collection of super friends had amassed uh, about your organization, which um, I should say to my listeners, compiles evidence, documentary evidence of war crimes in Syria, crimes committed not just by the Assad regime, but also by ISIS evidence which is so grounded in empirical fact that it has been successfully introduced into several European court cases in the prosecution of Syrian Mukhabarat officers or intelligence officers guilty of torture and crimes against humanity. And this working group was looking to essentially discredit Sija and the work that you do uh, and find out as much dirt as they could on you, your staff, and perhaps most importantly, your location, because of the sensitivity of the work that you do, the archives that you have, nobody publicly is aware of where exactly, you know, the headquarters for this thing is. So Nurma, it's great to have you on. I want to just open by asking you, why conduct a sting operation to try and to succeed in, in hoodwinking one of these British academics who simply believes that you know, the Assad regime has been falsely accused, framed by journalists, NGO workers, Western intelligence services, and that he's really innocent and is a victim in this elaborate Western conspiracy. Why do this uh, to begin with? And what were you looking to get out of this investigation? And frankly, is what you got perhaps even more than you bargained for? <laughs> Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me on your podcast, first of all. And thank you for bringing this story out with uh, Daily Beast and New Lines magazine. It's really important beyond CJA, beyond my organization. It's important to uh, bring out the truth about who these people are, how they work and who they work with in the uh, disinformation campaigns. But um, I want to go back to when we began. It was 1st of December last year. We did not expect anything. We did not know that we were mounting 
any kind of operation or probe because it started really with a simple one-line email to Professor McKeague, which uh, was unsigned from an email address that had no name or surname. It was a proton mail address, which simply said, um, I hear you are looking for the truth about Siege and Syria, and perhaps we can help. And it was sent off. We never really expected even to hear back, but uh, we did. And there was uh, a few emails of, let's say, testing allegiances, where Professor McKay wanted to see from which side we came, but we certainly did not present ourselves either as uh, Russian security intelligence officers or Russians at the beginning for a good number of weeks. So the, the idea, the reason why we did that is actually quite simple. You mentioned in the intro, we wanted to know how much of the sensitive information for us they would be able to find. We know what they would normally write because uh, we've seen them do it to others before us. They did it to organizations that are especially high profile in uh, their work in documenting war crimes. So their focus until December last year was mainly on the White Helmets and May Day, May Day founder and White Helmets co-founder James Measure, as you know, and then on OPCW when the fact-finding missions and after that the investigative teams were set up and these probes into chemical weapon attacks started coming out. So these were the two organizations that these disinformation networks really focused on the most when it came to Syrian war. They had managed to uh, sow the seeds of doubt regarding their work, if you will, over a number of years. And uh, we saw that our turn was next. Now, my organization is different because we are very low profile. We work clandestinely, if you will, in, uh, in Syria. We still have over 50 people in Syria uh, still pulling out evidence. The evidence we collect are the documents produced by the perpetrating party. Is majority of these documents are produced by the regime and their security intelligence agencies, and they are the, the king and queen of evidence, right. right? It's not a witness that you can shake in a courtroom whose memory might be fuzzy, who may have said something else to a journalist three years ago than is saying in a courtroom. What you have with the documents, right. and especially when you have a million documents written by the perpetrating party, you have something that's really quite unshakable. Yeah. You, know, you, can, you can say maybe one page can be forged, but certainly not a million uh, pages. So it, it seemed to us that uh, certainly in this approach to whitewash Assad regime's crimes, now that the military victory where it could be gotten is more or less secured, the next phase was to whitewash these crimes to start paving the way for his rehabilitation in the public uh, sphere. And there was one thing in a way, the war crimes. And there are so many and there's so much evidence. Right. So what do you attack? You attack white helmets who are coming out with these images of the rescue missions and the people. You attack PCW, and then the next one uh, was Sija. So we knew we would be a target. It didn't really bother us before. They had written, uh, when, and when I say they, I don't mean working group. I use uh, a common denominator for all of these uh, outlets, be they uh, American ones like uh, the Gray Zone or, or, or the working group they've written about us before, but on a much smaller scale, because uh, we don't, we are not so visible publicly. And that's the only way we can do our work and, uh, and keep alive. 
And as you mentioned, I mean, any, any attempt to not just scrutinize your work or your methodology, but to out your location or perhaps even out your contacts and personnel. I mean, as you said, there are 50 people on the ground in Syria to this day collecting evidence. Um, this puts people's lives in danger, right? It paints a target on the back of not just your institution, but the people who are working for it, who are in active war zones or authoritarian states. Of course, their lives uh, are in danger, in danger every day, first of all, like of any other Syrian who is in the country, but then they're in danger doubly so because of the work they do. You know, we've been doing this since uh, the beginnings of, uh, of the conflict. I mean, before it actually developed into a full-blown conflict, yeah. when there was no IS and, uh, and such like. So we've been collecting this evidence over a number of years, and among that evidence are documents that show that they are out to get our guides and girls, because we have girls. They want to figure out who they are. Yeah. We run separate teams. It's a very complex uh, operation run by professionals. We've been doing this you know, from Yugoslav, Rwanda uh, wars onwards. Basically, we've worked through majority of those mechanisms of international criminal justice since the 90s, and we know how to set those things up. But uh, what you cannot allow to happen is for these people to be tagged or labeled as belonging to one party or another in the war, which is, as you know, the approach that the disinformationists take to discredit organizations such as uh, White Helmets or Sija is to call them jihadi or Al-Qaeda connected or somehow try to say uh, we belong uh, or are collaborating with them when uh, that's obviously not the case since uh, the unfortunate fact is that the majority of cases we are seeing in Europe are against the Islamic extremist group uh, members and not against the regime. So the majority of the cases where our evidence has been used is against the guys that these people in gray zone and the working groups say we are collaborating with. And it's ridiculous. Some jihadists you turn out to be, you're putting jihadists behind bars. Yeah. Well, of course, and, but for the guys on the ground, it's different because once these rumors start circulating, not only that they might be connected to the extremist group, but that also they might be working for Western uh, intelligence services, that's just as dangerous. Of course. So you set out to find out what the working group had so far about your on your organization or what they knew. And why did you reach out to Professor McKeague? I mean, he was sort of you know, the founder of the working group and, and the, the most notorious figure, I think, is this guy, Piers Robinson, who was fired from Sheffield University. He's a, a 9-11 conspiracy theorist, does not believe, ironically enough, if, if everyone else is Al-Qaeda, the one thing that Al-Qaeda managed to do, take down the World Trade Center, Piers Robinson is not convinced that that event actually took place, right? So the working group has been in disgrace in the UK, and all of its members have, have faced some kind of scandal, whether it's accusations of anti-Semitism at the universities in which they teach to, you know, I mean, Professor McKeague is a, a rather credulous figure who claims that he was inspired in the notion that, that Duma was a false flag attack and it, it featuring gas chambers based on what an American pharmacologist wrote in a self-published novel, or I'm sorry, manuscript, claiming that this, this occurred to him in a fever dream, a literal fever dream he had after eating an anchovy pizza. <laughs> you know, these are not the most discerning, forensically astute people. And yet they, as, as you mentioned, they, they, they can be quite dangerous based on simply the, the lies that they put out. And in some cases, indeed, I mean, if they disclose the location of your headquarter, 
that would be a fact that could be used by hostile governments, parties to the conflict in Syria against you. But you said that you started to sort of, I guess, soften the good professor up by pretending to be on side and, you know, a a friendly, interested party. At what point did you then essentially telegraph that you were perhaps a Russian intelligence officer or agent and you were soliciting both his help, but also it seems offering to help him and to do so with the full backing of a state intelligence apparatus, which he seemed to, to, to find quite attractive. Explain exactly how the sort of correspondence carried on and what was disclosed in the course of it. Okay, well, to answer first the question of why, why McKeague and not others, but there was not, again, much thought that went uh, into it. Um, I know since the articles have come out, people think that there was this pre planned operation, but in fact, it really was not. The fact is that uh, Professor McKig reached out to my organization in February last year or January uh, last year for the first time with uh, an alleged set of questions that he wanted us to answer prior to the article that they would publish on us. Now, this, uh, if, to put it in the context, was about a month after they published a hit piece on uh, James LeMessurier after his death. That was the first signal that it is our turn next. But on the list of questions they sent us, there were no questions. They sent a bunch of names of the organizations or companies and registration numbers and asked us to confirm it. There was no question to, that to ask, are you faking evidence? Are you jihadi? Are you MI6? There was no question like that, which is indeed what they always end up writing or insinuating in their articles. So we have ignored that. Like we usually ignored such requests. And then, of course, uh, the COVID pandemic happened. They forgot about us. The working group, uh, if you look up what they were doing from March last year, they turned to COVID denialism and, uh, and conspiracies. And then after the BBC in the UK came out with a series of podcasts regarding James and May Day and disinformation in November, they turned to us again, the working group, when those articles came out. It's okay, it's time, uh, it's time to finish the CJA job. So by then we've been we've seen and we found out much more about what was happening with this whole disinformation campaign and James, whom we knew, and Mayday, whom we knew, but we didn't pay attention to these issues because we are so narrowly focused on be in Syria, work in Syria, get documents out, analyze them, provide them in a courtroom. There's no press releases, pictures, things like that. So, but figuring out more about how this disinformation campaign targeted white helmets through Mayday and James, it made us realize that this is precisely what they're going to do to Sija because of all the questions were targeting Wiley, Bill Wiley, the founder and the executive director of, uh, of my organization. So the approaches or the modus operandi is you cannot ruin the organization or the NGO you attack the personality, shake his credibility, and therefore you've shaken the credibility. So this is why we went to him, because he was the one who was writing to us on behalf of, uh, I believe he said, Miller Robinson and uh, one other member of the group. It was supposed to be a joint article. When uh, uh, he turned out to be responsive in the emails, we took small steps to see what he would share with us, and very quickly, within uh, the first uh, week to 10 days, I believe he shared the first version of his uh, draft paper of siege <laughs> uh, with us. And he never made any attempt to verify your identity? I mean, you just signed off your emails as Ivan. We did not sign them as anything. 
We oh, did okay. not yet sign them as anything. Ivan came on board uh, weeks later. So we the first uh, few weeks, we didn't sign the emails. We didn't sign the emails with anything. After a while, when we started hinting that we might be able to check some information and sources with our bosses who are elsewhere, geographically, we, then we started putting on initials, IIS. And then again, after two, three weeks, only then did we start putting Ivan and saying Moscow. And because we were trying at the beginning, we uh, didn't know whether we would be able to get anything or even start a conversation. But it turned out to be so that he was sharing everything, not only the drafts, but the sources. Well, the sources, they didn't have any sources uh, until uh, a bit later in December when one of our former staff approached them and started giving them information which he wrote up in the new draft as multiple sources from CJSA X, Y, Z. And when he asked, well, who had multiple sources? He said, no, it's only Susan. Uh, We don't have anyone else, (laughs) but we're going to say. They themselves acknowledge lying. Yeah. They who accuse others of being liars and propagandists and disinformation artists, they themselves acknowledge that they inflated one source into several, um, but don't tell anyone. They're just conveying this to you. Indeed, in that draft, because it said, we will say uh, it's multiple sources in hope it might encourage other people to come uh, and uh, you know, talk to us. And uh, of course, by the time that they published the paper, it was uh, after the Ivan Gate already <laughs> came out in the in the British press. So you know, he did do some... Uh, yeah. Last minute changes there, including removing, uh, removing first of all, the bylines of his uh, colleagues, Robinson and Miller. And then, of course, uh, turning down things that uh, he overexposed himself in, himself in the emails. The story that I did and, and what, what stood out to me the most is, and I mean, again, this is sort of ironic, given what these people accuse everyone who is not on their side of, of being and doing. I mean, this is all kind of a, a form of Freudian projection, right? Everybody else is working with the CIA or MI6 or some Western intelligence apparatus, whether they're a journalist or an NGO worker or a rescue worker in Syria. But here, you know, McKeague volunteers that members of the working group have been liaising on a semi-regular basis with Russian foreign ministry officials, uh, including one guy in Geneva, Sergei Krutsky, who is the son of Andrei Krutsky, who is a very well-known Russian diplomat who now heads a, a kind of an information body in the foreign ministry designed to coordinate cybersecurity efforts with European countries. In fact, when the, the GRU hacked the Bundestag uh, a few weeks ago, it was the elder Krutsky who offered the Germans help with figuring out who did it, even though it was his own country. I mean, it's, it's in other words, the working group has maintained extensive ties to members of the Russian government in, I don't know, whether they're receiving information, volunteering their own findings, including whatever, uh, you know, they, they might have uncovered about Sija. That He doesn't really go into detail about the sort of the type of, of information or communication, but the very fact that they have these contacts would appear to make them either accomplices to, if not, you know, the primary agents of a Russian influence operation, right? The Russian government wants to undermine the OPCW investigation into Duma, because if it can do that, then it will undermine all other accusations of war crimes against the Assad regime and its allies, including, by the way, Russia, right? 
Uh, and also, as you pointed out, you know, the, the name of the game, game now is rehabilitation or normalization. You have certain Arab countries, the UAE, wanting to bring Syria back into the Arab League and sort of get on with business and pretend that this, this last 10 years of a gross humanitarian catastrophe never happened. And of course, Russia is the lead diplomatic actor in this respect because they have a seat at the UN Security Council. So here are these British academics, none of whom, by the way, has any background in the Middle East or Syria. You've got a sociologist, a, an epidemiologist, and so on, but willingly conniving with Russian foreign ministry officials. And now in the, the persona of the invented persona of Ivan, one of them happy to connive with someone he believes is a Russian intelligence officer. I mean, get into the details. Professor McKeague was soliciting Ivan to conduct what reads to me like hack and leak operations against British journalists, think tankers, NGO workers. He was offering to buy a burner phone, which clearly means he wanted a more clandestine relationship with Ivan, one that, you know, was in, they had a secure line of communication. This was a guy who himself was offering himself up to a what he believed was a hostile foreign intelligence service, whilst still accusing everybody else of doing the same thing. Walk us through a little bit about what you learned and when you learned it and how that sort of uh, perhaps recalibrated your thinking with respect to engaging with McKee. Well, don't forget this communication lasted some while actually from 1st of December until mid-March, if I remember. And, uh, and it was quite frequent. It's not like we exchanged emails once a week. When we printed this bundle out, uh, it was, uh, I think about 430 pages of correspondence. So, uh, so there's a lot. Now, majority of it focuses on CJA and on Bill Wiley and on them trying to figure out whether he's CIA or something else because he's Canadian, but you know, can he really be CIA? So they think he's fake Canadian. So there's a lot of you know <laughs> discussions like that. How can you prove that he's not really Canadian? He must be uh, from the States. But then, uh, so the majority of the conversation is about CJA because that was their target. And then in the conversations, let's say of the small talk about the other interests of the working group, this other information started coming out. First, regarding uh, their contact uh, in Geneva, uh, Russians' mission to the UN in Geneva, uh, and the, who was claimed to be by McCaig the uh, uh, contact for Vanessa Beely, the blogger who lives in uh, in Damascus, whose proudest moment is uh, you know, meeting uh, Assad, uh, who drives around in a pink Volkswagen Beetle with uh, Assad's picture in the back, back of it. So uh, Billy and Robinson, the ones who uh, uh, were in contact with Geneva, he meant, gives us the name of the contact person in London, that he and some others from his working group have been in touch regarding coordination of some of the events. And of course, the one that uh, was talked about the most in the emails was the contact in The Hague, in the Netherlands, who... The Russian ambassador to the Netherlands. Not only, exactly, not only liaised with the, with the working group and, the, and such like, but also with the alleged uh, or so-called whistleblowers on the OPCW before they became uh, whistleblowers in the two years, according to the, uh, to the timeline. So all of these, this information came out. And uh, I don't know how... Describe to you when these emails would drop in the in the inbox with information like that. I mean, we would be uh, shocked and disbelief and uh, laughter, you know, because you just can't believe how's this information coming out so easily, you know. 
I mean, it, it can't have been that much of a surprise, right? I mean, when you see these tropes, these arguments being trotted out, and they just so happen to perfectly dovetail with what Russian state media is saying, you draw one of two conclusions. Either these people are sort of almost divinely inspired in their own right to come up with the exact same conspiracy theory as what Sputnik and RT and Channel One in Russia are putting out, or they are there, there is some line of communication, whether they are receiving the propaganda from the Russian side uh, directly through media, or perhaps they're being spoon-fed their talking points by unseen Russian state actors. And indeed, it seems the latter and is, is probably true here. Well, of course, and that's not the shock. The Russian involvement is not was not the shock. What was shocking for us was that it was so easy to get this confirmation from it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like we, you know, we've been investigating. I didn't work as an investigator in the in the tribunals, but I was an investigative journalist for you know, a couple of decades almost. So I've never found it so easy to get uh, information which was verifiable. Yeah, you know, and uh, that was the shocking bit. And of course, that's when we started realizing, and this was probably a month into almost a month into the uh, correspondence between Ivan and uh, and McKee, we realized, well, we're getting here so much more. You know, we set out to do this to protect Sija, and within the first three weeks, we found out that uh, that we had a. Oh, we had a leak, not leak from within the siege, from the from the former staffer who provided all this information about the locations, not only of the headquarters, but other locations we have and the personal information about families and children and where the children live, if they don't live with the people, et cetera, et cetera. All of this information. Now, remember, for us, just the fact that they have it. Yeah, is a danger. Right. It's not. It doesn't matter whether they published it or not. You know, I've seen that. Uh, you know, they say, well, we didn't publish anything, other than the location of the headquarters office. That doesn't matter to me. Their best friend Vanessa lives in Damascus and hangs out in the cover up. You know. Well, and, and also, and, and you've now established that they maintain a direct line of communication with the Russian government. So even if they don't publish this information, they will have almost certainly passed it along to their Russian handlers. And that's, uh, you know, we, we have to live and we have to act with that uh, uh, assumption and belief. So that's why the moves had to happen and people had to be protected and, uh, and certainly steps have to be taken against the individuals who, who did this. But we, in any case... When this other information started coming out, confirmation of the Russian involvement, confirmation of uh, of how they network and collaborate among each other to to set these events, to start spreading this uh, seed, these seeds of doubt even further, then that's when we started thinking, well, we can't just sit on this. You know, it was a difficult internal discussion for us because. Again, as you'll appreciate, my organization has, as I said, a very low profile and coming out with something like this just makes us a target even more. <laughs> right. But it, in a way, it, it also does indemnify you because it shows that the people who are criticizing you are not acting in good faith and indeed might even be doing so at the behest of a, of a, a foreign government. One of the things I'm curious about, and uh, I actually, it's amazing to me, it occurs to me just now and in the three, four weeks we've been discussing the story, I don't think I've, I've even asked you. At some point, you had to kind of pull the plug on this sting operation, and you were working with other journalists, the Times of London, the BBC. Why did you decide to end it there? Why not keep McKeague on the hook a bit longer, see what else you could draw out of him, perhaps even give him assignments to try and find things that you were curious about? Well, two reasons. We were getting uh, tired and we have daytime jobs. <laughs> 
<laughs> which uh, you know we can't right. move the process because you know these documents are still there in Syria and, and there are actually cases uh, that we are working on in Europe. So it had taken, as I said, already three months, with a bit over uh, three months. The more the BBC and the Times and the Spiegel were working on the first uh, uh, wave of the stories, so we had to. We would rather cut it in time before it starts leaking or they find out. So we needed to, we needed to stop. We didn't do anything specific specific to uh, pull the plug on the communication. Basically, the communication stopped uh, uh, the day McKay received uh, a notification from the BBC that they would uh, <laughs> be asking for his uh, comments on uh, on this. And you know what his first reaction was? And that was the last. He went straight to Ivan. He went straight to Ivan and said, something <laughs> something really terrible has happened. Can you get hold of me on a secure line somehow? <laughs> hilarious. Absolutely hilarious. That was the first person he wrote. So, so the response, uh, the public response after um, the BBC article came out that uh, the professor was always uh, aware that uh, he may not have been uh, speaking to whom he assumed and that he was embellishing and that he didn't really trust the person he was speaking with. I think it's a, yeah, it's a lot of bull. <laughs> well, to that point, I want to, I, I want to raise something with you, which is um, it's interesting and I'm going to be a little bit careful in how I raise it because there, there's more to come on this story. It's being taken forward on the back of, of the New Lines investigation, in fact. But, you know, as far as I can tell, and as far as I've been able to chase up, what McKeague told you has been verified and accurate. He was privy to things in real time, which we can show as a matter of sheer chronology of the emails that he can't have been privy to and he can't deny now, in retrospect, being privy to simply because there, there it is, the date and time of when he was talking about something that had yet to come to light. I have found no evidence that he was embellishing anything in his disclosures to you. And in fact, I mean, the candor, the, the specificity of information really kind of gave the whole game away and, and did so, I mean, as you say, over the course of three months and change with horrible operational security. I mean, if this guy was, was volunteering himself to be a, a secret agent, I don't think any spy <laughs> service in the world would... <laughs> would take him on. And it's, you know, I mean, as of now, from what I know from my reporting and just kind of what's in the public domain, I know that his university, University of Edinburgh, is, they stood on a firm freedom of expression principle when the first story came out. But now, because it's been divulged that he was sending personal email addresses and essentially a target list of various, you know, British reporters and columnists think tank people for the purposes of Ivan and the Russian services to, to hack. He was saying it would be great if this information wound up in the public domain. Uh, at one point, you guys had had even offered to, quote, attack people. And you, you asked for a list and he provided you a list. I think the Word document was titled shills.docx, right? We're, we're dealing not just with a, a, a malevolent individual um, on a moral basis, but there is a possible commission of crime here. I know that CJ has passed along the correspondence to British authorities. Can you give us the latest? I mean, what is what is going on here? Because you know, it's one thing to traffic in innuendo or just outright slanders and, and, and libels about uh, an NGO such as yours in the hope that somebody will take that up and do harm to you, whether just reputational harm or physical harm. It's quite another to essentially try to suborn a Russian spy to commit cybercrime against one's enemies. 
I mean, is, is Professor McKee going to lose his job? I mean, is he is he going to go to prison? I mean, what where does this go? You have eccentrics in Britain on a, a major scale compared to those in the United States. But but this is not even, you know, bizarrely funny anymore. This is this is quite serious. Yeah. No, as you said, it's a, a developing story. There is, I think, there's still more from the emails uh, to come out. <laughs> so many different angles from which uh, to explore this. What will happen to this particular individual, to Professor McKeag, is uh, something that uh, remains uh, to be seen. The British authorities do have access to this information now. They are reviewing it. I believe Edinburgh uh, University has heard from a number of affected parties by uh, this exchange. But we can say, I mean, Oliver Oliver Cam, the, the leader writer at the Times, was one of the people McKeague was soliciting Yvonne to hack. And Oliver sent me, when I was doing preparing the story, sent me his, his formal complaint, uh, which he's taken very seriously. And, you know, Edinburgh responded by saying, we will investigate all matters, but we're not willing to comment at this time. So it, it looks like, yeah, I mean, <laughs> there is some disciplinary process taking place here there is a process and then uh, we'll see what the findings will be i mean for me you have to make this into to take this a bit wider you know about why do these universities and there are two or three universities in the uk that uh, gather academics from this uh, that this group uh, gathers academics from why and for how long could they stand by and say it's uh, academic freedom or personal opinion. And with McCaig, it just couldn't anymore. I don't believe it can. Okay, he was not using Edinburgh University email in his correspondence, but certainly his biography link at the end of his email was to the to his university page. He spent a lot of time using the credibility that his job at Edinburgh University gives him to persuade Ivan that he's somebody that you know, should be trusted and has information that is uh, that is credible. That he's not he's not just some uh, fringe uh, lunatic. <laughs> so, and and that is the danger. That is what each and every one of these individuals in the working group do. Uh, McCaig, Hayward, Robinson, Miller. If they just listed their names with no affiliations to what a daytime job is, they would have zero influence. But they come out with these statements as a professor of uh, something or other in Sheffield or in Edinburgh, Leicester, I don't know where else they come from, and then uh, and carries weight. Wait, you see, you see the Russians when they cite these uh, so-called research papers that they publish that have zero scientific uh, value. They say it's eminent uh, professors that have issued uh, these, these research papers. That is the danger, you know. It's uh, and and that's how it spreads. It's not just about the bots that they have following them in Twitter. They're spreading this poison in uh, in their lectures to students. To you know, it, that's scary. I've been watching this develop since the '90s. It's mushroomed into something of unbelievable proportions. This this information network and how influential it is becoming, and how quickly it can seep into the mainstream or even overtake you know, the mainstream. And that is that is an additional danger of it because you've you diluted the truth. You don't know what the truth is anymore. Yeah. Well, we see, as you mentioned, I mean, we saw that with the white helmets. And I think Chloe at the BBC, who, who did that fantastic May Day podcast, even says at one point, there's a psychological term, I, I, a form of gaslighting, really, where you don't quite realize what's going on with a, a group or a person even. You've just heard so much. There's been such a din 
you know, in the atmosphere about them that you think something's a bit off, right? So even Chloe said, setting out to investigate the disinformation around the white helmets, she always had a bit of a twinge about the white helmets, like there's something not right about them. And it turns out it's because enough noise has generated this kind of perception. And yeah, I mean, I think that that's absolutely in keeping with kind of the age old tactics of, I mean, if you study the KGB's disinformation campaign during the Cold War, it was never designed and none of these these schemes were designed to convince people of an alternative version of reality. It was to sow enough skepticism and doubt about the actual reality that nobody wanted to assert anything with confidence. Nobody wanted to embrace you know, a set of facts because they were afraid of what it might do to them reputationally. Um, and you see this to, the, to this day. It's the hollowing out of these institutions based on even scaring donors away, right? Or finding allegations of impropriety and fraud, which I know that Mayday had suffered from, even though they were exonerated in the end by a, a professional accounting firm. It was an error. It was not you know, any kind of um, criminal act. They've done this with you, seizing upon these allegations and trying to say that it, it shows that the totality of the work is itself fraudulent, right? There is nothing of any value or substance to what these, these organizations are doing. They are fronts, they are conspiracies, they are being controlled by Western spies, et cetera. And it's hard to live that down, right? That stain tends to attach even, I mean, even in doing this, right, and, and here mapping out this, anatomizing this whole network around the world with Russian state actors, with WikiLeaks, we didn't even talk about WikiLeaks involvement in this, with the, the former defense counsel from Milosevic at the Hague, it, it'll, it'll almost be impossible to come across somebody who doesn't quite have a sense of dubiety about Sija and the work that you're doing, right? Even in exposing the people who have attacked you, you will not have been, you know, completely redeemed, at least in the kind of mass psychological sense of the term. Well, absolutely. But because that's how the human nature works. Which article do you think was circulated more? Even among uh, the Hague circles of uh, you know international criminal justice field, where it's such a small field, everyone knows everyone. Do you think uh, the New Lines magazine circulated more or the Grey Zone attack on seizure? Of course, the Grey Zone, because people lap up the negative, you know, and then, you know, but somehow they think, well, I can read between the lines and maybe figure out the part of Grey Zone that says seizure is jihad is maybe not true, but which parts could be, you know. And that's, but that's how you do the, the human weaknesses, that, and, and that's what they are exploiting, and that's how they are advancing. The agenda and the agenda, we know what it is, you know, to advance the disinformation in order to rehabilitate Assad, yeah. to negate these crimes that ever happened, to muddle the waters, to muddy the evidence. You can't, but they cannot muddy the evidence. And that's the problem. It can never, the CJ evidence stands. This is sort of, I guess, where we, we must maintain a sense of proportion and sort of common sense, right? I mean, you know, the OPCW investigation into Duma meaning who's responsible for it, the assigning culpability continues apace. Just last week, as the story came out, uh, the OPCW suspended Syria and chastised them for chemical weapons use related to another chemical weapon attack that the working group hadn't paid much attention to in Sarakeb. Mukhabarat agents have been caught in Europe and they have been prosecuted in many, most cases successfully based on the evidence that Sija and others have compiled. So the credibility of the work is maintained, at least at the institutional, you know, kind of law and liberty levels in liberal democracies, right? But yeah, again, it's it's the, the kind of mass perception that's been inculcated by these actors. You know, it reminds me, there's an old Orwell line that, you know, so much of left-wing thinking is playing with fire, but by those who don't realize that fire is hot. 
And that almost seems rather quaint in the 21st century because these people do know that fire is hot. In fact, they, they are looking to burn things down. They are looking to burn individuals. They are looking to burn organizations doing valuable human rights work. And that's the goal. You know, it, for, for me, there was a kind of Rubicon crossing when after James LeMessurier committed suicide, you would think that these people will, would have given up on the white helmets, right? I mean, what more mission accomplished than the guy who founded the organization tossing himself off a balcony in Istanbul because of the, the vilification that had taken place against him personally and against the organization he built. But no, I mean, online, you still see people kicking a corpse, attacking his widow, Emma Winberg, on social media, claiming that his rescue workers are, are terrorists. It's really quite extraordinary. I mean, the, the kind of darkness of human nature that has been exposed by these campaigns. Exactly. And especially so. I mean, they did, I think the White Helmets and James uh, in death became targets again because they dared to speak out to try to correct the record yeah. through the May Day podcast. And that's one thing that these disinformation networks don't like, especially whether self-proclaimed journalists or academics who you know think everything should be explored in depth and uh, uh, they are only as informing the public about uh, the other aspects or the other side of, uh, of the coin. But if you stand up to defend yourself, that's uh, something they cannot stand. And you see, you've seen it. Sija stood up. You know, we were not going to sit there and wait for the usual circle to happen, which is for the working group to publish the article and the gray zone to do the hit piece and the Russia Today to pick it up, then Vanessa to do a few blogs, et cetera, et cetera, before eventually, you know, MFA uh, spokesperson in Moscow says something in one of the press briefings. That is the circle in which it travels, right? And it just perpetuates itself over and over and over again. So we knew they would do it anyway. There was no, you know, the, the probe, well, the, uh, the sting, as you call it, you know, was not designed to stop the publication. We knew they would publish it. We actually expected that they would be even <laughs> you know, more uh, incensed by the soul after, after finding out what we did. So actually their reaction was completely uh, expected. But uh, the, the point to take away from this is we only found this out because we were not going to, we were not going to accept to be sitting ducks for them. Well, you know, I mean, it's an extraordinary investigation and what it's brought up is even more extraordinary. I mean, I, I didn't realize the extent of their, I mean, I knew there was something going on that there, there must be Russian state involvement, but just how vast it is and how coordinated uh, impressed even myself. I will say one thing though, you know, we have the first amendment, we have people can say whatever they like, especially in the kind of ungoverned spaces of the internet. But at some point, somebody is going to get killed because of this stuff, right? I mean, we've seen in the United States what disinformation coming from the kind of pro-Trump MAGA right has wrought. I mean, the first real insurrection attempt against the United States government on, Janu on January 6th this year, people losing their life, militias sort of coalescing and plotting attacks against commerce, against individuals, the, the recrudescence of race hatred aimed at, against Jews, Muslims, Asian Americans now. Uh, at some point, you know, this, I don't even know what to call them, the, the tanky left, the anti-imperialist left, you know, working hand in glove with the Syrian regime and Russia. At some point, they're going to get somebody killed. And I wonder mm -hmm. if that, how that's going to change the way we talk about them. I wonder if that's going to change the way that uh, Western governments have indulged and tolerated them, again, on the basis of free expression. 
you know, your free expression is all well and good, but if it becomes incitement to violence, then you have crossed a, a line. You laid out at the beginning of this interview, a very clear cut case that, you know, that there are people who, whose identities I don't know, and I don't want to know, who are in grave danger as a result of what the working group and its affiliates are trying to do, right? I mean, they are putting their lives on the line to collect historical documentary evidence of war crimes. And so do they deserve to have these targets painted on their back? Do they deserve to be put in additional harm because a bunch of cranks sitting in universities with tenure have a funny feeling that they've been misled by the mainstream media on Syria? Well, Nera, I mean, thank you for coming on. And I, uh, I think we should have you back when the needle is moved on, on, because as as I said, I I wanted to be a little bit coy. I can't tease too much, but there is more to come on this story. There is more to come. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, uh, Nurma, it was great to to have you on. Uh, Thank you again for kind of giving me all this stuff to pour through and analyze. It was really one of the most surreal investigations I've ever conducted, but also I think one of the most rewarding because it's one thing to have a hunch. It's another thing to have it right there in black and white. Absolutely. Now, thank you for doing such a great job with it. And uh, yeah, we'll keep on working on it. For sure. Great. You've been listening to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, and we'll see you next week.